Well, good morning, church. How are you? It's good to be here today. My first time here preaching at BUCC. Hopefully it won't be my last. But I just want you to know it's a privilege and an honor to be with all of you today. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts give you glory, honor, and praise. You, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Parables. They're some of my favorite lessons in the Bible. Are parables your favorite lessons too? I like them because they're stories, right? And they operate really by turning the world upside down. Jesus speaks in parables all the time. And if we were to examine Mark's gospel, we would see that his followers never seem to quite get it. Luke is a later gospel narrative. And in Luke's gospel, female characters figure prominently. They show up and they speak in the most profound of ways. Just think of the early chapters in Luke with characters like Mary and Elizabeth. Or once Jesus is born, uh, characters like Anna the prophetess. I love the fact that women figure prominently in this gospel, and that's one of the reasons I chose this particular story as well. I often turn to Luke for inspiration, especially in dark times, especially as a woman in leadership. In Luke, I'm inspired and challenged. The scripture that I've chosen today is a parable, and it's a story about a widow and a judge. Maybe you're familiar with it. Widows in the first century Palestine had no power. Without a man, a woman would not be heard. In fact, a woman could not give testimony in court. In fact, the whole scene of the widow going to the judge is itself quite troubling and could be the point on which the parable turns. It'd be as if the early listeners were listening and scratching their head and saying, widow? Alone? Did he say widow? As an aside, in the Jewish community, there was known the Leverite law, very commonly invoked. If, if a woman became a widow, then her husband's brother could claim her as her own. Uh, these laws existed to help protect people, like the widow in our story, from abuse and neglect. A woman alone was subject to abuse, neglect, violence. We could look to the book of Ruth for an example of this practice of the Leverite law. If we were go to go back to the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures, we'd see that justice included justice for the widow. It's not sacrifices I want, says the Lord. I want justice. And over and over the prophets say, if you want to follow God and be a sincere believer, then you must care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien. Forget your new moon feasts and your feasts and celebrations. I want justice. Care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien. The prophets, like a litany, would address these things. In our story, the widow does not appear to be well cared for. There's no man at her side. And the judge, I don't know about you, is not a judge I'd like to appear before. 
The judge does not fear God, nor does he really care about what human beings think. So really the judge, as a symbol of justice, doesn't really even work, does it? In fact, the judge in his position mocks the system and mocks justice itself. But it's important to point out that the parable proper was probably much shorter than we see than we saw on the screen, or that you're maybe looking in your Bible at this moment. I have studied this particular parable at great length, and with the help of wonderful scholars such as Barbara Reed, I was given guidance and new insight. Many of us, many scholars really believe the parable does not begin with prayer, it begins with the widow. That essentially, from Jesus' mouth, was a much shorter version that the community later set up to address prayer. So this really, many of the pericopes we see in the Bible get added to. This is not uncommon. Um, hopefully you're not scared or disturbed or I'm not too shocking. But this is part of the development of the gospel narrative. Jesus has a statement and then the early church community couches it, if you will, in prayer. It doesn't mean that prayer isn't uh, an important element or an important element for Jesus. The Gospels grew over time, and with the editor's input, things changed. Yet study demands that we try to go back to the original version and to get clearer about the original message. I'm not saying that you and I can't talk about being persistent in our prayer. Being a prayerful person and being persistent in our prayer is part of being a Christian, right? But what if the first parable was really trying to underscore justice, particularly? Then I think it challenges us in a new way. What if we set aside prayer just for the moment, just for a moment, and move with the widow in her desire for justice? then faith is really not about believing, it's about praxis too. About praxis. How do you and I practice, practice our faith? How do we put it into action out in the community? Do we put it into action? I can't tell you how many discussions I've had as a teacher of religious studies over this passage like this one. It really made folks uneasy. Is this parable inviting us to justice? And if so, what are you and I to do? Now it's peculiar that the justice, the judge does respond, but he responds for two reasons. One, he was worn down. And second, he's worried he's going to be injured by the widow. Now we can appreciate the fact that judge is being worn down. What parent has not been worn down by a child? Have you been worn down by your children asking for something? Mom, Mom, Dad, please. What minister has not been worn down by the needs or the requests of the community? Being worn down is not a problem or a question, really. We got that. He was worn down at the widow who kept coming. But injury at the hands of the widow? Really? This is kind of strange. Some scholars suggest that the judge is in collusion with the widow's adversary. And it's that relationship 
that maybe lurks in the background, in the shadows, that if exposed could change everything for the judge? Could the judge be harmed if the truth came out? Could the widow expose the judge? I love the twist and turns in parables. Do you? Finally, the end of the parable, some suggest, could be at verse 5. And, and there at verse 5, we don't end up with the final comments. And why would the parable end earlier? Think about this. The connection between God's desire for justice and the judge doesn't really make sense because the judge does not care about justice. And God hearing our prayer, it's like saying God is in the face of the judge. And why would Jesus say that God, I mean, it doesn't work for me. Does it work for you? My sisters and brothers, perhaps the woman is the image of the divine. The poor woman without a husband, without power, trying to turn the tables around. I mean, doesn't she remind you of the Jesus we meet in the Gospels? If you dare and go with me and stare at the face of this widow, then we can be invited to see the face of God in someone perhaps we least expect. And this would especially be true of the community, the community in which the parable comes from. Aha, the parable is working its magic. So God is like the widow coming and asking, Give me justice. Give me justice. Give me justice. That's big stuff. For me, the gospel challenges and inspires me in so many ways. And I then can make connections. Can you? Connections throughout history. Connections for, with people who are working for justice, who are working for justice, all kinds of connections. My sisters and brothers, as we get ready to celebrate King and all of his many accomplishments, as we hold leaders accountable for creating systemic change, and as we write letters to address local and national leaders, let us not do so without awareness for the justice that's required of us individually in every circumstance in every encounter in life? How do we in our everyday lives care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien? How do we care for these who have been treated unjustly? What's required of us personally and collectively? How do we follow in the footsteps of great civil rights leaders like King to change things? You see, in light of this parable, King's work was at the center of the gospel, like the woman he was coming to an unjust world, an unjust community, saying we can't have black and white, we can't have separate but equal. We can't. We cannot. King wasn't some outlier. He was a minister of the gospel. 
in the footsteps of the widow saying, I want justice. The whole civil rights movement, we want justice. As they looked out at leaders who would talk out of both sides of their head. For King, for Jesus, for the widow, justice is the centerpiece, not some sideline. It's the centerpiece. But of course, you know this BUCC, don't you? You have let your life speak in a state that often wants you to remain silent. You have advocated for the rights of those of all sexualities. Being LBGTQ should not place us at the margins, no. Having a sexuality that is not like a leader in our community just reflects the beautiful diversity of the great planet that we enjoy. We live in a diverse world, and God made us that way. Can I have an amen? Amen. I am a white woman. I have not experienced life as a black woman. I will never be able to, never. I am white. And my color has never been an obstacle. The color of my skin has only created opportunity. My ancestors came over from Poland, free men and women on an ocean liner. They may have not traveled in style, but they were free. It wasn't until seminary that I, my eyes were really opened, kind of like the parable here. We have an opening, huh? The widow coming, the face of God asking, justice, justice. I was excited about the black theology class. Everyone was talking about Jamie Phelps, Dr. Phelps and her good work. I couldn't wait to take it. And I had signed up and was heard all about her exceptional studies, scholarly ability, and great lectures and discussion. When I walked into that black theology class in the 90s, way back when, I was kind of proud of myself and my accomplishments, feeling proud and strong and successful as a seminary student as someone who was taking Dr. Jamie's class. Well, when I walk into the class, I'm the only white person there, the only white person in an all-black class. My sisters and brothers, that was really the first time that I recall ever being the only white person in a black environment. My first time, really, sincerely. And even sitting there with my colleagues, it felt different. And that was just the beginning. We don't have time for me to go through all of the things I've learned in that class. But it really comes back to this parable and this moment and this lesson, if you will. Because in that moment and in that class, I started to hear the stories of my brothers and sisters. Stories about hate and violence, stories about abuse, stories about slavery in their past, stories that made me very uncomfortable. 
There were times I really wanted to leave that class, drop the class, and move on. But I stayed, and I listened, and I studied, and I learned. But not only that, I also learned that there was something lurking in my heart. You see, I feel that my classmates and Dr. Phelps were like the widow coming to me. And here I was so puffed up and proud as this white privileged woman. But in the class, I recognized that even though among my family members, this language that they would speak about at the dinner table, those people, my family, those people, my family not inclusive at the dinner table, yet they did go to church each week, they did pray, they taught me to pray. Yet our, even our church, our church community, growing up, said certain people should be out of our neighborhood, and those certain people were black. So it was only in that class moment that I realized, even though I pushed back against what I saw, the seeds of all that were in me. The language that came up was this like recovering racism, if you will. This fact that growing up white and, and growing up in a world, I told you I was in my 30s before I was in an all-black environment. How often had my black colleagues been in environments where they were in the minority all the time? And here, it was only in this classroom that I started to look at my life, take a you know, magnifying glass and realize that as much as I railed against what was going on, that the seeds of the injustice were in me. I started to notice sometimes on an elevator, how do I treat my black brothers and sisters? In my car, and people I meet, how do I see them? How do I see them? Do I see them? It's hard in some ways speaking about this because it's something I'm not proud of, but it's the turning point in my life, the turning point. And I have to say that from that moment, I developed a friendship with someone in the class, and she and I hung out together. Sherry and I became good friends, and I started to learn about the black world. But I was in my 30s, kind of waking up a little too late, as far as I'm concerned, but at least I was waking up as a seminary student. I began to look back at the past and think about some of the religious leaders who were trying to keep the community one color, how they led the community with such power, but yet they were preaching the gospel? It was so interesting, that moment, that pivotal moment that made me look at everything, my life, my world, my white world, that no, knew nothing of the black community, and Sherry in her presence, teaching me about what she does to her hair and how she deals with her skin, so different than my hair and my skin. My sisters and brothers, we're really just at the beginning, aren't we, of coming to understand the injustice that's been plaguing our community members for too long. We're just beginning. And like the widow coming to us, like God, like Jesus Christ saying, we want justice. 
justice. Our hearts have to be changed from the inside out, from the inside out. That's the way we'll make the big difference, huh? From the inside out. More work has to be done, my sisters and brothers. We're just really at the beginning. But locally, we can do something. I want to mention something that's important to me, and I thought it might be a challenge for you. We can participate in an organization like BUILD, BUILD a United Interfaith Lexington. BUILD is an organization here in Lexington that I'm a part of. I'm a part of that organization with Second Presbyterian Church. Through BUILD and through church communities, over 2,008 families have safer and affordable housing. More than 196 million have been leveraged in our community since BUILD won an affordable housing in 2014. Through BUILD and the work of BUILD in the community, there's a pilot program in place that deals with delinquencies among students in the black community. We are trying to be more just in dealing with kids who misbehave, and we don't want our black students to receive steeper penalties and greater punishments. The safer, saner, safer, saner schools model is now a pilot program here in Fayette County, six schools. BUILD is also working to address issues such as gun violence, and we're hoping for new victories this year. BUILD has approached Bluegrass United Church of Christ before. We are not a member currently. Why? What keeps us from participating? If we want justice in Lexington, then joining BUILD is a real way we can pool our power and our efforts to address the leaders and the injustice that exists. I know you are people of justice. I know that you have suffered. But if we join with BUILD, then we can make a bigger difference as a larger faith community. Like the widow, like Jesus Christ, like our ancestors, like those in BUILD, we are being summoned to participate and to lead justice efforts in our community. This is big stuff. And if we consider prayer that begins and ends this passage, then prayer and justice are the two foundational elements for the lives of Christians, aren't they? And that's why we're here. But it's been my experience that when I pray, God changes me. When I pray, I get new insight. When I pray, I discover that more is being asked of me. When I pray, I recognize the blindness within. My sisters and brothers, I'm here to say God is with us, yes. But like the widow, we must do our part. We live in difficult times. These times are challenging. But let us not lose heart. We have an example here in the face of the widow. She had the courage to speak up and speak out, and she won a victory. Sometimes the work of justice takes years to accomplish. Look at King. Look at the black community. Rarely is a victory seen overnight. Yes, I trust that our prayer and our work with a God who is beyond our imagination and whose love is more expansive than the ocean waters can help to change the world into the kingdom of God. 
My sisters and brothers, the widow is speaking to all of us today, asking for justice. Give us justice. Yes, you and I must pray. We cannot stop praying. But B-U-C-C, you've been on the forefront of justice, and your light has drawn me. Bluegrass, your light has drawn me. Let us consider together the work of the widow. Let us consider the work that she has done so that those in Lexington who are excluded and marginalized, who are voiceless and feel persecuted and prosecuted unjustly, let us consider the widow so that we can validate and include, support, and speak out. My sisters and brothers, the widow has blessed us today, has she not? Some parable. Here's to the God of Jesus Christ that we meet today, especially in the widow's eyes. If we look in that face of the widow, you and I have to be transformed. We have no choice. Our God, the widow, Dr. King, they're all leading us, and for this, I'm grateful. Amen. Hallelujah. Thanks for joining us for the Bluegrass United Church of Christ podcast. We'd love to have you join us for a service sometime. We meet on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at 500 Don Anna Drive in Lexington, Kentucky. You can find us online at bluegrasschurch.org.